You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr there is nothing wrong with your television set we are controlling transmission for the next hour sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear you are about to participate in a great adventure you are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Let me warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individual. I see the individual. I see the individual. Against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. I realize what I'm about to say comes as a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in. simultaneously. In the form of energy, and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like. It explodes into this enormous collage 
Tony Epstein, it's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. I'm really excited. We have a live guest in the studio. It's been a little while. Shomriel Sherman. She's a graduating student at Goddard, and you, your thesis was titled Seeing in the Dark illuminating illness or yeah illuminating illness seeing in the dark illness as illumination Il- illness as illumination yeah i'm not reading <laughs> the page so. quite all right i prefer not to if i can help it yeah so welcome thank you it's great to have you so how did you discover goddard i had begun looking into graduate school while i was living on the west coast and I was looking at an expressive arts therapist program out there, sort of turning around that in my mind. And my mother, this was in 2008, my mother had been a social worker, and so she had the clinical background, and she gently guided me away from the clinical side of things and did a little research and found Goddard and specifically came across the transformative language arts concentration 
within the Goddard Graduate Institute program and directed my attention to it and said, I think this might be a good fit for you. And that was back in 2008, like I said, and in 2012, I ended up applying and beginning my studies here. So you started in 2012 here? Yes. Have you been here steadily throughout that time? I have been. I started half-time, and I maintained half-time status throughout. So that gave me a little more time to really dig in to the program than I would have had otherwise. I had to take one leave of absence, and then took me a little while to get the thesis to a place that was satisfactory. So so you, you had an illness. When Was that during your time at Goddard, or was that before? Yes. Um, I think it was July of 2014, so I would have been just coming into the second half of my G2 semester here at Goddard. I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, mediastinal non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was the particular type of cancer. And I underwent chemotherapy for that. And how did that affect your life and, and your study here at Goddard? Obviously, that, doing chemotherapy and having... Was, was this a, a severely life-threatening um, case? Or what, what was going on for you with, with that? I honestly don't know how close I came to death during this. It was all really a blur. I had been getting ill for probably about eight weeks that I was aware of prior to winding up in the emergency room, unable to breathe. But I had no idea what was going on. We don't have a history of cancer in my family, and it wasn't anything that I was on the lookout for. When I was diagnosed was treated in Boston and they told me that this particular type of cancer is relatively common in young women in their early 30s and that it was an aggressive and quickly moving type of tumor but it had a it was known for responding well to a particular chemotherapy regimen that they put me on so I didn't need to undergo experimental treatment or there wasn't a lot of uncertainty, I suppose, about the traditional path that I should take within that model. And I underwent six rounds of chemotherapy. I did the math, and I think it came out to 576 hours of chemotherapy. And I stayed in the program. Ruth Farmer, the program director, gave me the option of taking time off and I really felt like staying here and remaining connected to the community and to the work was the really the thing that would bring me through what was a very disorienting experience otherwise. So how did being at Goddard affect the way you you related to your illness? And the way you saw it, and maybe the way you, you approached 
issue, the therapy? I mean, did you have questions? Because one of the things that Goddard does is it inspires a lot of questioning and and yes, definitely investigation and just new ways of, of looking at things. Yeah, uh, that's a very interesting question. How did being at Goddard relate or impact how I related to the experience that I was going through? I think it made me more eager to truly dig into it and explore it as a process that could yield some fruit rather than rejecting it as, you know, an unfortunate event or a curse or a tragedy or any number of things that so many people around me were treating it as. I think cancer carries a lot of weight and mythos in our society, perhaps because there are so many different forms of it and it's so, there's still a lack of understanding about it. So there can be a lot of fear surrounding it. And I really felt pretty much right from the beginning, like it was going to prove to be a blessing for me. So I did a lot of journaling and reading other people's illness memoirs during the time that I was in the hospital. I had a lot of free time on my hands. And the presence of community, and much of this was the Goddard community, and some of it was the outside community that I had around me. That community of support that provided me different mirrors to see different aspects of myself that were coming to the four as a result of being ill helped me see see myself less as a victim than I may have otherwise or not for the Goddard community and being in constant dialogue with other people who had been through illness of their own or were simply very familiar with the, the darker underside of life and so there wasn't I wasn't receiving pity from people, but I was receiving a good measure of empathy. And it allowed me to sort of grapple with the experience in a more honest, fuller way. So, <clears throat> sounds like you felt that you were in a, an understanding community here. Yes. Yes, very much so. So, what were you studying at the time of the discovery of your illness or ex first experiencing it? I had come into the program initially back in 2012 when I began with a desire to really explore what military veterans were facing when they came home to their various communities. So one of the guiding questions for me initially had been what are ways in which veterans can contribute meaningfully to their home communities in peacetime existence? And some of this was on a practical level because 
simply securing employment can be challenging for many veterans. But beyond securing any employment and making a living financially, it's a question of meaning and purpose. And I've heard from many friends and acquaintances who have served how difficult it is to feel like they belong when they return, like they're contributing in any meaningful ways to society. So I was investigating primarily farming as livelihood and vocation and also the therapeutic aspects of farming for veterans. And then when I got diagnosed um, by necessity, my studies ended up encompassing what was going on with me personally, as well as my initial research question. So how did you become interested in studying that aspect of, of veterans and reintegrating into society and all. what inspired that I mean where that seems so unusual I've, I've I don't think I've heard anything even remotely like that here at Goddard and I'm, I'm just curious what what interested you about that what inspired you to to follow that the genesis of it for me I wanted to say I do want to say that it began with a specific primary relationship in my life, in my mid-twenties. But as I was preparing to say that, I remembered that even in high school, I was interested in the experience of Vietnam veterans when they came home and how much of a gulf there was between them and their experiences and so much of civilian society, people who had managed not to serve for one reason or another, so for whatever reason, this question and this discomfort and dis-ease around the divide between veterans and civilians has been in my heart and mind for some time. And then it just bloomed. It came to the surface when I had moved out to San Francisco and began dating somebody who himself had been in the army prior to my having met him. And I think I began seeing certain things through his eyes uh, as a result, simply of walking around the city with him and coming to realize how many of the homeless people that we would encounter on the street were actually veterans. And that started seeding some questions around why military service and homelessness were so often linked and what it was that people were dealing with, what it was that individuals were dealing with, some of the challenges that they were facing. And I started talking to people and asking questions, and one thing led to another, and I started meeting older veterans who seemed eager in some aspects to share with somebody who was searching. and just guiding me toward memoirs and toward documentaries and pieces of information that would, I guess, give me further insight into some of the questions I'd begun asking. So what were some of the questions that you began answering that these veterans were, were answering for you and sharing their experiences? 
Some of the reasons why people end up serving, and this encompasses issues of class, financial constraints and considerations, education. It also really (laughs) touches on some mythic elements that are at work within American society, but also deeper than that, the idea of the warrior and what it means to be in service to something larger than oneself, what it means to truly be a functional uh, member of a tribe or a clan, which are concepts and realities that most of us here in Western society, Western post-industrial society, we're not living within a tribe. Most of us don't even live with an extended family to the extent that we did perhaps, you know, as recently as a hundred years ago. And we're very atomized or split off in many ways from the things which have nourished us and given us a sense of place and meaning traditionally for much of our species existence. And so looking at some ways that the military can provide that for people, that sense of belonging and that sense of being within a unit that is dependent on you that you can contribute to and having work that has meaning. And also offering a kind of initiation that we don't have in our culture. We don't really have any forms of initiation, I don't think. And that's a huge piece of it. Judith Herman writes about this in her book, Trauma and Recovery. She talks about combat. War is not uh, limited to combat. And there are many people who join the military and receive all of the training and function in different aspects uh, without ever seeing combat. But they too are, that joining the military and that way of shifting how you view yourself and how you see the world and rewiring so many aspects of your being that is a rite of passage and it does function there is something deep within us that requires that rite of passage and it's an excellent point that most of us aren't getting that so for many people joining the military ends up serving as a rite of passage And there's also that, that aspect that you touched on of it being a very noble gesture to offer oneself to something larger than oneself, to offer oneself and one's service to their country. It reminds me of, I just got that image of in, um, back in, in the time of, of, knights, chivalrous knights, how any able-bodied male would aspire to being a knight. That would be like the highest, mm. highest level of, of achievement and glory. And that I could see how people could, could actually see military service in that way. I believe it has the potential to be really noble. And something that people on the left probably wouldn't ever think about. 
Because I grew up during the Vietnam War and everybody I knew, everybody who I thought was intelligent and yes. was completely against the war thought, saw it as being completely senseless and, and couldn't imagine there even being a good reason to go to war for anything. I mean, there was memory of World War II being something that made sense to go to war for, but Vietnam War was pretty senseless, um, and every other war that we've been involved with has seemed more and more senseless and insane. So you must have encountered a lot of um, sense of disillusionment in in that experience of war, trying to follow a path, an ennobling path, and then discovering that there's like no no floor underneath it. I have so many thoughts coming to mind as you're speaking, and I want to make sure that I speak in a measured way and not beyond what is my scope of of knowledge. Well, I I hope that you'll also offer your your opinions and and any feelings that come up because sometimes or, or insights because you never know the value of of what comes up. So. Feel free. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll do my best. Oh. I was out in San Francisco visiting um, some family over Christmas. I ended up getting together with some friends of my cousin. And the issue of veterans and service came up, and I was expressing... I guess some level of admiration for the training, certain aspects of the training that people undergo while in the military that can lead to qualities that I don't necessarily see in myself. Things like self-discipline and resourcefulness and an ability to assess a situation and see what needs to be done and not get overwhelmed by the crisis aspect of it. And this person responded very vehemently about the issue of militarism. And I think that people on the left, oh, one thought leads to another in my mind. The country is very divided and segregated in more ways than one. And particularly in the Northeast, we have much, many fewer military bases. So we're not as steeped in military culture as certain parts of the country, like the South. And if we are moving in academic circles or professional circles, many of us can go our whole lives without knowing members of the military on any sort of personal, intimate level. In addition to that, the military, people who serve in the military are coming from a smaller and smaller amount of military families. And 
I've heard the statistic repeatedly that about 1% of the population is serving in the military. So this is a very, very small, very, very small subsection of our society. It's not representative of all of us. So it's very easy, as it often is, to have ideas about people whom you don't know intimately. People, if you're not, you don't know their families, you're not going over to their home and sharing a meal at the table with them and talking from the heart. And so to conflate or equate the idea of militarism to think that everybody who serves in the military is simply functioning as the arm of the state. You know, I'm, I'm not in a position to speak on that, but I do know that many of the veterans whom I know personally have seen the shortcomings of the military and up close and personal. The reasons that encourage people to go in in the first place and or the ideas surrounding military service initially for a 17 or 18 year old and what one sees going through the experience of war regardless of whether it's a war that was waged for the right reasons I'm saying this in quotation marks regardless of the reason for the war people are going to have a different understanding of war once they've been through it than they did going into it and one of my challenges has been to hold space for different feelings and experiences and understandings around war there are some people who have nothing except regret and remorse for their service and there are some people who have enormous amounts of pride surrounding it and there are many people who carry both of those paradoxical emotions within themselves which is a very challenging way to move through the world it's much easier to be able to see things as all good or all bad and I think it can create a level of discomfort if not torment for people when they can't pick a side that easily some aspects of it are are still the most meaningful experiences that they've had in their life 50 years later while some aspects of it you know they've really come to see the darkness within themselves as a result of service so I just think it's important to remember the humanity of people as we're coming in contact with them and thinking about the choices they make so that's really beautiful work to be building a bridge to the humanity of these people who are, I would say, are being very <clears throat> mar marginalized by a certain segment of our, our society, particularly people on the left, people that predominate in the Northeast who, who don't have any direct connection to real, living, breathing human beings in the military. I don't have any connection. I don't know a single person who, knowing, I mean, I don't know, I'm not aware of anyone who's been in the military. I 
knew someone very well who was uh, in special forces in a very, very um, clandestine way. But that was very different, it seemed. That was a whole different universe. Another very strange thing where a lot of inner torment reconciling these these very powerfully disparate elements, particularly when when yeah, that tears tears apart because things aren't bl black and white. Things aren't just good and bad. People aren't just good and bad. We have all these things in us and we do all sorts of things in our lives and hopefully we can learn from them but some people are destroyed by them and as you've been talking about your experience and the veterans that you've been meeting particularly a lot of homeless people being veterans I would imagine that those are people who have had a very difficult time reconciling those things within themselves and maybe are just barely hanging on. I think that's a really good point and an important point that you make about the disparate elements within us. And I believe as I've been writing and living through this thesis, both the aspects relating to war and the aspects relating to my own illness, I've really had to wrestle with an understanding of my shadow and as I've <laughs> done my best to face that face the sort of the dark hidden parts I believe Jung is responsible for the uh, the concept or the articulation of the concept of the shadow anyway and it's really dark hidden places in individuals and within larger groups and entire nations that bring about such shame and fear through their existence that they're suppressed. They can't even be faced when one is alone. There's too much sort of energy um, wrapped up in this this dark, unintegrated psychic material, essentially. It's like the monster in the basement. And then it gets projected onto other people because matter of whatever kind, <laughs> psychic or otherwise, it, it can't be created or destroyed. It needs to go somewhere. So if it's being split off from an individual or from a group, then it needs to be affixed onto somebody else. Or if we're repressing it, pushing it down, it's going to pop up somewhere else. Exactly. And yeah. if we can't recognize and face it in ourselves, then it can really distort the way we relate to each other because we will see the worst parts of ourselves that we refuse to see reflected in other people, which is why it's so... Um, Carmel, Carl Marlantes, who is a, a Marine during Vietnam... And he won the Pulitzer for his novel Matterhorn. He wrote a memoir called What It Is Like to Go to War. And that was one of the really essential texts for me that I was drawing upon during my studies here at Goddard. And he talked about 
how in World War during World War Two there was this idea that the American service members were the good guys completely. You know that that wasn't questioned, and he referred to them as you know jitterbugging, gum chewing, like happy go lucky MacArthur's boys, and he said. All of the other shadow aspects or the unsavory elements of what took place during World War II weren't acknowledged or talked about at all. And then during Vietnam, the pendulum swung to the opposite side. So rather than being able to see service members, American service members during Vietnam as human beings who did good and bad things. Or or knights in shining armor. Knights in shining armor because the service members during World War II occupied that role of the knights in shining armor. And so there needed to be balance. And so the balance, unfortunately, was that service members during Vietnam held all of the shadow and the darkness that hadn't been acknowledged during World War II. And Marlantes points out that in both World War II and Vietnam and in every war, you know, <laughs> good and bad come to the surface in people depending on the situation that they're put in and depending on the training that they receive and a variety of things that you don't always, you can't anticipate ahead of time. You don't always know what's going to come out of you in the moment when you're placed in a very different situation than your day-to-day life. Different things are called up out of us depending on our situations, at least as much as our character. Mm. And the individual veterans of the Vietnam War paid the heavy price of the shadow acts of our government. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) there's so much to say about that but I I really don't feel like that's my place to speak so much about Mm -hmm. that so I should tell people I'm speaking with Shomriel Sherman she's a graduating student here at Goddard and she wrote a thesis titled Seeing in the Dark Illness as Illumination thank you and it's this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. So it also occurred to me that studying um, war veterans and encou- have experiencing cancer is an experience of of war within the body. Mm. And yes. at some point, how so. How how did your experience with cancer parallel the study that you were doing? It took me quite a while to really tease out the threads of connection between these two sections in my thesis. I I started with the body. I think that was always what I had to come back to in order to keep the thesis coherent. So the small body, my physical human body, in relationship with the larger social and ecological body, and in relationship with other particular individual bodies that drew me into deeper understandings and insight than I would have had on my own. 
So for me, I guess the primary connection was understanding that nothing is disconnected. There had been a lot of forms of illness that my family was dealing with in the several years leading up to my being diagnosed with cancer. And I truly thought that I was somehow above the fray and that I was the healthy one while my family in each of their ways was dealing with various challenges. And when I got sick with cancer, I began seeing cancer not as an illness itself, but as a manifestation of a a deeper state of illness that we all shared in as a family unit and as a part of this society. And so cancer was a, it was almost the connection between my family and my country and this world that I'm a part of. And I began really questioning my ideas around health and illness and the idea that an individual can be healthy when the system that they're a part of is ill or that there can be a functional system when its components are ill and dying. And so in this process of really looking at my own ideas around myself and what I thought it looked like to be healthy and and what I was being faced with, with undeniable illness, I began to reconceptualize health as being not free from blemish or pain or suffering or dysfunction, but really being aware of these places and being able to acknowledge them and hold them and see them as points of entry between the individual and the larger system of which they were a part. So I began looking more, uh, studying ecology and looking at ecosystems and how they function and trying to dialogue with cancer rather than isolate myself from it and treat cancer as the enemy. And it was such an interesting experience to go through chemotherapy, which is really all-out assault on the body. But the enemy that we're being taught exists is an enemy that's within ourselves. Cancer is very much an internal state. So cancer, this enemy, supposed enemy, is within the body. And then we're taking toxins into the body to destroy the illness from the inside out. But the effect of that is that all of the body's healthy systems are destroyed in the process. And it becomes very disorienting to go through that experience where you're saying this thing inside me is evil (laughs) to use sort of religious terminology and it's threatening me but these toxins which are you know causing my hair to fall out and causing sores all over my mouth and you know my bones are aching and I can no longer walk like those are good (laughs) and please give me more of those 
Uh, so I, I went through what I had to go through because I felt like it was important to continue surviving in this physical state in this body for a while longer. But there was a lot of speaking to myself and, and my body and the cancer as a part of myself, just asking forgiveness for what I was putting myself through and trying to honor the cancer as a teacher that had come into my life for a reason to show me something that I wouldn't have been able to see otherwise, even as I needed to destroy it so that I could continue living. Still, I'm three years out from that. It's still very difficult to wrap my mind around that whole experience. Yeah, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around it and how to express a question that's wanting to come up or about this kind of fascinating metaphor of cancer in the body being a metaphor f or being so related to war out in the world. Um, I yeah, I, I don't know how to articulate it. I, well, I spent over 200 pages trying to articulate it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> there is something there, but sometimes it can take a lot of circling to get to it. Yeah. And you, you there were some references in your book to, to experiencing this illness like a journey into the underground. And into the underworld, yeah. This, this kind of mythic hero's journey into the darkness, into into the underworld. And how, yeah, talk about that. And that has always been a fascinating thing for me. Connect, because as, as we mentioned earlier, we don't, we're not initiated in our culture. We don't learn certain things that are integral parts of of most other cultures or older cultures. So we're kind of left to, on our own, to, to discover the world and to find meaning in the things that happen to us. So this journey into the underworld and doing it literally on the front line of, of, a, of war within your own body. So I had structured my thesis, both sections of it, as a quest, sort of drawing on the idea of the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell, in particular, has put out into the world in terms of an individual being called, whether deliberately, whether with their own intention or through forces greater than themselves, called from the life that they know and the comfort and the sense of identity that they've been existing within to journey out from that place of the known world and what's familiar and comfortable and begin a journey that really leads them into some dark and fearsome places and forces them to confront their own mortality and there are companions traditionally that the sojourner meets along the way who help them journey through the underworld so that they're not doing it on their own. They're people or, or guides, not necessarily humans, but guides who come alongside them in the process. 
And then once they return, once they emerge out of the underworld, there is a boon that's part of it, a boon or a gift that they have received as a result of this quest that they can then bring back to the tribe. So they've been changed. Something has shifted within them. And as a result of that, when they go back into the tribe, they have something to offer that they didn't have to offer before. So this structure is one that I applied to my initial section of my thesis, which discusses my own illness, as well as to the second section of the thesis, which is looking at war illness. So I... I believe there was the roots of illness, I explored roots of illness, and then the descent into it, and then the ascent up out of it, and then the boon gained from the experience. And in both sections, I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't equating the ascent out of illness with what we might think of as healing in traditional terms because there are a lot of people who are always going to carry the marks of their experience either internally or externally or both and this brought me to some interesting places as well this Audre Lorde and Karen Miriam Goldberg both wrote about this in their memoirs of illness, how there's so much... <sighs> We're discouraged from walking around society in a visibly ill way. So people going through cancer are given wigs and makeovers. Their makeup is done, so it's not as obvious that they have no eyebrows or eyelashes anymore. And... People are in women who undergo mastectomies for breast cancer are encouraged to get implants or reconstructive surgery or at the very least wear bras with, um, you know, false implants within them so that they don't make other people uncomfortable by their appearance. And as a result, even though cancer is currently impacting I believe the current statistics last time I checked were one out of three women are going to have cancer at some point in their lives, which is an enormous, an enormously high rate of us. We don't recognize each other. We don't understand exactly how prevalent this disease is because we're encouraged to, to hush it up and to, to stay indoors if we're sick. And, you know, when we go out to make sure that we look good and don't make other people uncomfortable... And I didn't wear a wig when I received chemo and all my hair fell out. And I walked around, sometimes with a mask in public, sometimes without one, but I had lost a lot of weight and I was obviously ill. And what opened up as a result of this were the most genuine interactions with strangers that I've ever had in my entire life where people looked at me and knew instantly what I was dealing with and people would approach me in the grocery store and start telling me about going through cancer or nursing somebody very close to them through cancer. And it was like I was in the underworld during this time 
all of a sudden, there was all this light breaking forth, just really altering the reality that I normally move through where we know nothing about each other and we make small talk and anything beyond small talk with strangers is considered socially unacceptable. And all of a sudden we were having conversations about life and death and people were crying, you know, because I was obviously visibly ill. And that made me start thinking if we can create spaces where we can recognize each other, then who knows the types of conversations that can begin blooming from these places of authenticity and vulnerability we just need to be able to recognize each other mm. yeah and the boon that you're referring to is intimately connected it's part of the illness oh yeah it it's can't be separated from it right so in the boon of war illness i used the term endarkenment which is not my own term and traditionally, it's been associated with ignorance because the darkness carries such negative connotations in our culture. But I've come across authors who have used it as the gifts of the darkness, having journeyed through the darkness and gained wisdom and insight from those places and those painful experiences that one wouldn't have otherwise. And so I look at veterans and others who have come through illness and pain and suffering, and that can encompass so many of us you know, on so many different levels, as potentially having reached endarkenment as the equivalent of enlightenment. Endarkenment mm -hmm. through being very grounded in the body and in the experiences of the body, as opposed to enlightenment. When I think of enlightenment, it's all very heady, and it's reaching up toward the, you know, the celestial planes, and you have these epiphanies and these revelations. But I think what it comes down to is how to be in this body, in this earth, with all of these other suffering, fragile, vulnerable bodies, and to reach for enlightenment in a way that's divorced from the body and the realities that bodies and that the body of the earth is going through is almost escapist to me. So I have come to honor and darkenment and the gifts that come through those, those journeying through the dark places. Right. Like, like enlightenment without endarkenment is not really enlightenment at all. Yes, yes, exactly. And thank you for that. There needs to be a balance. Nobody can live in the darkness or, or in the light all the time. Or integration of it, embodying all of it. All of it, yes. Because yeah. I think about, I wrote about in my thesis how I have plants and I have plants that I care for, house plants, and they can go from looking completely dead and shriveled to all of a sudden there are all of these buds and these new leaves coming up from underground in the soil. And so there's that necessary process of growth and maturation that happens below the ground and the digging down and the rooting down and the getting the nourishment from the, from the dark places. But then at some point you, you reach up above the soil and you reach toward the sun and you need that as well. Like winter here. <laughs> <laughs> like winter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Shomriel Sherman. 
she's a graduating student at Goddard, and she's written a wonderful thesis, Seeing in the Dark. Illness as Illumination. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. There's this, this very short little piece that I came across and recorded that I want to play. It's, it's less than a minute, but it, it says what we're just talking about. And this is just a, a nice excuse to play it. It really grabbed me when I heard it, and I just had to, had to take it. This is how they survive. You must know this. You're too smart not to know this. They paint the world full of shadows and then tell their children to stay close to the light. Their light. Their reasons, their judgments. Because in the darkness, there be dragons. But it isn't true. In the dark, there is discovery. There is possibility. There is freedom. In the dark. (laughs) (laughs) That's so gorgeous. Where's that from? Isn't that wonderful? That's from uh, one of those um, TV shows called Black Sails, and this was something that happened at the very end. Oh, yeah, I love that. Add a little drama to our conversation. (laughs) Oh, it's perfect. It's nice to hear. I think as I was getting closer and closer to completion of the thesis, I came across more and more authors, many of whom I couldn't include at that point (laughs) in the project. Um, People were thinking along the same lines as me. And it's funny when you think you have an original idea and then you (laughs) find that you're just enmeshed with a whole bunch of other people who are all thinking about the same thing at the same time. And people have been going on this journey of self-discovery for as long as humanity has been on this planet or anywhere in this universe. Yes, I'm certainly not the first. (laughs) (laughs) But But it is a journey that we each have to make ourselves. So, in a sense, it's fresh and new, and it's the first time, which is kind of like the way the way to authentically live is to live each moment as if it's the first or the last, mm. the only. Mm-hmm. And there's some way, and I can't articulate this, but I know it to be true, that each of us having our own journey and giving ourselves over as fully as possible to the processes that we need to undergo that ripples out toward everybody else so sometimes it can feel selfish to to go inward and to focus on the inner work that needs to happen when there are so many other demands on us and so many other things that we feel obligated to get involved in but I think the I'm still living this out. The more I do my own work, the more that has an impact on everybody and everything that I move through. 
you're talking about the connection of the inner and the outer worlds. And I don't know exactly how it works, but I know it does. Mm -hmm. But doesn't it make sense that the inner and the outer are not separate and that they must be inextricably interlinked and interconnected and to value one over the other might be a folly, you know, a, a fool's folly or something like that. But, it, but of course, we have, to, we have to experience that and learn that directly. You, you talked about using the tarot as a metaphor for this journey, and I haven't really studied it that much, but I love the metaphor of, of the fool's journey. That, you know, we start out, well, maybe I should let you talk about your experience with it. Well, I'm not an expert at all. I've just been fumbling That's my just, way through it. It makes two of us. So. <laughs> um, you know, tra- the major arcana of the tarot starts with the fool. Mm-hmm. And in this context, the fool, that's not a pejorative term at all. It's just somebody beginning the journey. Mm-hmm. And know? innocent. And innocent with the blessings and the curses that come along with that, mm-hmm. you know? The, the curse that we don't know anything and the blessing that we have everything to learn. Yes, yes, exactly. And along the way, the fool or the journeyer meets different aspects of the self, manifesting in different forms. Each of them has something to teach and it's an endless cycle. The major arcana closes with the world, which is the sense of completion. And then it begins all over again, back to the fool, because we're always new. You know, it's that the whole concept of beginner's mind, just mm-hmm. coming into every situation new and fresh and present and as much as is possible, which is so challenging, not projecting our ideas and our past experiences and our, you know, the residual memories of our past experiences onto what we're experiencing now, but letting it be what it is new and fresh in the moment. Mm -hmm. And part of the the fool's journey is getting to experience all the the joys and sorrows, the, the pains and pleasures of life, physical life in this world. And there's this iconic card, the Three of Swords. Mm, that's which one of is, my favorites. Which is essentially what you went through with your cancer. It it's symbolizes the most devastating experience that we can have in this world. And it's part of, of everyone's journey in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that card. It's been such a, a crucial card for me, just the imagery of it. And it stays the same across many tarot decks as well even as there's variance between many of the imagery of the cards or the imagery of many of the cards I should say the three of swords almost always resembles itself so you know the one that's coming to mind for me is a heart pinned to a tree with three swords stuck through it and blood dripping out of it and within that there's the there's the sense yes something very painful is happening to you 
but surrender to it and see what comes out of it. And it's still alive because the blood is dripping. Mm, yes. It's not a corpse. No, this is not the end. Right. And we have the decision. We have the choice of how we're going to respond. Are we going to respond with self-pity? Or are we going to respond with surrender? In fact, it's actually one of the earlier cards in the deck. So it it yes. symbolizes that we still have a long, long journey ahead of us. And we're going to carry that trauma, that scar, and what we can turn it into in some alchemical way mm. along the way, which is yeah. part of that great journey of, of life, the hero's journey, the journey through the underworld, um, all those different metaphors. Yeah, and it's reflected in so many different traditions. And my own background, I'm Jewish on both sides, but both of my parents had conversion experiences prior to meeting each other in their late 20s and ended up meeting at a Christian, a non-denominational Christian congregation where they got married and raised myself and my siblings with this really interesting combination of Judaism and Christianity. And in my thesis, in the introduction to my thesis, I talked about the story of Jacob in the Hebrew scriptures where he wrestled with the angel all night long and he said to the angel, you know, the story goes that he said to the angel, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the blessing that he received, he was marked with a limp after this encounter, this, you know, dark night of the soul, right? And he had a new identity and his relationship with his brother Esau, with whom he had been in conflict prior, that shifted and there was forgiveness and reconciliation that came about as a result of what he had internalized through his struggles with the angel or the divine or the adversary, you know, which can open up a whole nother part of the conversation. It's really interesting looking at that through tarot as well, this idea of the devil or the adversary, this, this force that might seem dark and harmful or even malevolent that comes into our lives. But if we can really wrestle in a, in a good way with this force, then its entrance into our life will end up being a blessing. And then certain writers talk about this, the, the creative or the demonic, but uh, D-A-E-M-O-N-I-C. So it's not, again, it's not a negative pejorative connotation. It's just, it's a, it's a force with a lot of dark energy. And if you- Creative open, energy. Creative energy, right? Which is, which is dark if, if maybe pushed aside or suppressed, mm -hmm. it can stagnate. Yes. But it can also open up entire new realms of being and living and new identities. Right. There's this guy, Paul Levy, who wrote an amazing book called Dispelling Watiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil. Uh, I've heard of this. An incredible, brilliant book. He talks about, and he uses the term, and it's pronounced, as I've heard it, the daimon. Mm. And that if we don't honor the daimon within us, the creative genius within us, it will turn 
evil. It will turn dark and it will and malevolent. And that one of the things we have to do is we have to find a way to honor it and integrate it into our lives in a meaningful way. Otherwise, it will turn to poison mm. Mm. within us and then spread outwardly. Yeah, that's powerful. And when I look at the world around, you know, listen to the news, I just see endless evidence of this kind of dynamic happening. So this, this metaphor of the adversary, experiencing cancer is an example of that. War is an example of it. And the way we, we relate to it, the way we, the way we see it, the way we honor it. I've really been playing with the concept of the dragon in my life for the past several months and the the stories and the tales and the myths that we have around the dragon in our society where the dragon is (laughs) traditionally a, a fearsome beast that is guarding the gold or the princess and that needs to be slayed before it slays us so that we can get to the gold or the princess or whatever is on the other side of the dragon. And there's a shift in understanding that came about for me, you know, and Satan has also been referred to as the dragon. Again, this this, this goes back to the idea of the adversary and, and what that, what that, uh, character really is what its function is but looking at the dragon as something that needs to be seen and recognized C.S. Lewis I'm not sure if you've read any of the Narnia Chronicles I have but a long long time ago ago. so maybe they're a little fresher in my mind but they were really important childhood books for me as they were for a lot of people I believe this is in the the second book, although don't quote me on it, but there's a character there who, he's a human, he's a young boy, and he finds a dragon's lair, and he sees the dragon, the dragon's sleeping, and he goes up, he finds this uh, bracelet, this gold bracelet in the dragon's lair, and he puts it on, and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he's become the dragon, And the bracelet, which fit him when he was a human, is now digging into his skin and causing him immense pain. And Aslan, the lion, comes to him and ends up not doing the story justice, but he he rips into him with his claws. That's the only way that he can release the boy who's inside the dragon is through this very painful experience of going very, very deep and pulling out, like ripping apart the scaly outside. And he has to go through the pain in order to come out, in order to be released from, from the dragon self that's holding him captive. But it is him. <laughs> and it was brought about by greed, right? Mm-hmm. And so another, this is just an example of this, this tendency that we have. It's so hardwired into our society and so many of our stories where, again, there's, there's good and bad. Good and evil exist on opposite sides from one another. And so the dragon is something that the knight slays. 
and for me just coming to the dragon as another aspect of myself and looking into its eyes so that it can be seen and recognized for who it is and what its purpose is rather than coming toward it with the sole imperative to destroy it and to eliminate it because then it will just come up in another form you mean just relating to it and destroying it as the other as the other rather than this other idea I've been working with of inviting in this guest, this dark and fearsome guest, and saying, come sit at my table with me. Tell me who you are. Tell me your story. Tell me why you're here. What do you need from me? And what do I need from you? And why have you come into my life? Please help me recognize you. mm -hmm. Or even the recognition that, well... You're already sitting at my table. <laughs> You're already here. <laughs> there's, there's not much point in, in pretending that you don't exist or that you're not here. Yes, exactly. Or, or trying to fight you in that way because it's like there's that, that, that term, resistance is futile. <laughs> when we're resisting ourselves, elements of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's the metaphor of the devil or Satan. You know, different traditions talk about it in different ways. The, I guess the youngest tradition, um, the Christian tradition, demonizes it, casts it as the other that must be banished or destroyed. But in older traditions, Satan is, is honored as being, I think, I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not an expert on this, but like the left hand of God mm. is one of God's most um, valuable angels. And Satan has a very powerful role to play in the lives of, of human beings. And yet, because of ignorance, um, he's been demonized and misunderstood. I mean, this is all metaphor, right, of course. Right. But it's a metaphor that plays out in our inner experience in different ways for different people. I wonder if he can be equated with the trickster figure. Mm. Like a grand trickster. Like a grand trickster, which is a morally neutral force. You know, they create chaos in their wake, but mm-hmm. they're just... Like the daimon. It depends on how we relate to it. I believe so. And I believe even within Christian theology, if you really are trying to take all aspects of it into account, if if one is holding to the belief that God, as God has been conceptualized, even in mainstream Christian theology as omnipotent, omnipresent. So he's he's all powerful. He's everywhere. <laughs> he <laughs> that's where I automatically go with it, so deeply ingrained. But all loving, all powerful, all knowing and all present. And if all of these things are all at work within this this uh character of God, then how, where does that leave room for the character of the devil or Satan? Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's n- there's no room for any other anything that can be conceived of as other is part of that. 
It must be. It has to be by definition. By definition. Otherwise, then God. Otherwise, has God been is. God is at least one of those attributes of God. Right, is relegated <laughs> to being something less than everything. God is either not all loving, if He's allowing this this character of evil to wreak havoc in the world, or not all powerful. He wishes it were otherwise, but He can't do anything about it. Or he just doesn't know, right? You know, Satan is sneaking around behind God's back. And so if you're going to hold to these deeply rooted tenets of God, then I think there needs to be a different way of conceptualizing and relating to the role of the character of the devil. Mm-hmm. And it, I think, is a, a metaphor for our own journey, our own inner journey of, of maturation, of maybe the a higher level of individuation, which is like turning back from individuation to recognizing the wholeness, the world in the tarot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is that built-in element of wholeness. And I think that's what I finally arrived at in my thesis, is that the goal is wholeness. And that is what health is to me. It's being able to carry the darkness and the light. And I I really came back to this idea of waste versus compost. Waste materials, garbage that we try to get rid of, that we try to incinerate or bury or put into the ocean. Susan Griffin talks about it in really mythical, mythological terms. We try to get rid of it. And it comes back. It always comes back to us. And then we can see this in terms of, you know, pollution. When we can compost our waste materials, then it can actually create uh, more nourishment for the, for the ground and for the food which we're growing and the life that we're growing from the ground. So what that requires is for us to relate to that stuff in... A different way instead of trying to hide it or push it away or segregate it in a way because that kind of stuff turns rancid and stinky and foul if we don't treat it right yes if we don't handle it skillfully to use the buddhist term and handling waste skillfully is composting it. It's recognizing its true potential value, mm-hmm. which is, is understanding that's the cyclical nature, the interconnected, interdependent cyclical nature of everything in our world. Yeah. There was a Vietnam veteran I came to know when I was living out on the West Coast who has a farm and he practices what he terms agrotherapy, and he uses, he incorporates his own waste materials, humanure, into his garden, and he grows food from, you know, from this combination of uh, organic materials that are finding their way into the ground, the land that he's living on, and it's one of the most, to hear him speak of it, and to see him move about in that environment, there's something incredibly therapeutic and restorative about that, about using your own waste materials to grow life from. 
as well as simply the aspect of being in touch with the land and, and growing food, which can then support your community. So I think that was one of the sort of the turning points for me along the way when I got the invitation to go out to his farm and to come in contact with him and the way he was using those materials, which I'd always been taught to think of as, you know, as nasty and shameful. And that's something that you flush away and you don't look at or smell or think about. Here it was like coming in intimate contact with it, but we're seeing the, the potential that it has. The fruit of it. Yeah. The fruit of the darkness. The fruit of, right. Yeah. That alchemical process, that mythological al- alchemy, turning lead into gold, turning crap into, <laughs> into new life. Yeah, I studied, I haven't studied alchemy in any way to speak of, but I did draw on some essays around alchemy when I was constructing the section of my thesis dealing with the shadow and the boon of war illness. And there were some authors who spoke specifically about the most shameful materials being the most valued materials in the alchemical process. And they mentioned, they said, urine and excrement, those are the materials that have the greatest power inherent in them to be transformed into higher elements. Right. And the people who who are generally considered to be the most wise, I mean, like, the wisest people are the people who have gone through the metaphorical dark night of the soul, who have experienced, they've gone through the the three of swords card in their life and they have not only survived but they've turned it into the gold of life and turned it into the the world card mm. have they've come full circle and and integrated and are able to share that gift which is something that you mentioned early on being able to share Yeah. The boon, the gift. Yeah, I think that's where it all resides. Where, like, oh, this—it's so easy to go on the defensive when life is sending <laughs> events your way. And I've seen so many people in my life who have just been slammed. It's like one thing that comes their way would be plenty and instead is like, you know, three or four or five things all at once and it's truly, you know, those are the times in which you you really look around and you begin questioning how the universe is constructed and who's steering the ship. But the beauty of it that I've seen in my own life and that I've seen in the lives of many others who I'm truly honored to know is that those, Joan Halifax talks, uh, Buddhist Joan Halifax talks about the wound being a portal or a gate and that's where it's at for me it's like you go through the darkness you go through the most painful stuff that really splits you open and you know turns you inside out and then you come through and those points those scars and those wounded places are the places of connection with others and as other people are going through there dark night of the soul or making their underworld their journey into the underworld you can't 
you can't do it in place of them. Each of us needs to go through our own journey and our own experiences, but we can companion each other in the ways that we have gone through ourselves. And sometimes, and oftentimes, and I talk about this in the thesis too, like it's silent companionship because there's nothing to say as people are going through some really horrendous stuff. There's nothing. It's just presence and just that reflection that, you know, I'm here. You're not doing this alone. And I, I have gone through the forest myself and I've come back. I've come out, you know, there's a fire here waiting. There is a clearing, no matter how dark and tangled the forest is, there is a clearing and there's a fire here waiting for you. And I'll, you know, I'll be here. I'm waiting for you. And you'll, you'll make it through just like, (laughs) just look for the, like the glimmers of light. And you're not alone. You're not alone. Mm -hmm. And that's what got me through some really hard times in my life, knowing that I wasn't alone, whether I had the physical presence of others with me or whether it was through online journaling. There was an online cancer journal that I kept during my experiences and there were people who sent me their memoirs that I could read as I was going through my experiences and there was that type of dialogue that took place through the words on the page. And then coming to Goddard and and seeing people who just who were so happy to see me even though I was in such a <laughs> a physically weak and an incredibly manic state when I was here for that residency I was on uh, prednisone as part of the chemotherapy treatment I was just off the wall but people were here with me just this full-on heart presence and when the mania wore off and I was dealing with you know, the accompanying depression and all of that, I was still able to be in communication with people and they were able to anchor me and help me navigate through what came next. That portal through the, through the trauma, the wound, the whatever that we're having to deal with, opening a doorway, a portal to that deepest, most essential aspect of who we are who we all are. And that's the thing that I, I love so much about this community at Goddard is that I love watching students experience that and hearing their stories of that. It, to me, it, it, just open, it just makes my heart sing. Yeah, I've learned so much from the students who have come before me who, you know, maybe I've overlapped with them a little bit in the time that we've been here, but all these trailblazers... Yeah, we're not doing this. This is a learning community, truly. It's not a collection of discrete individuals. And it's not an easy process. I mean, we you have to do the hard work of of making that journey into the underworld. And it's it's scary, it's lonely, it's painful, it's devastating. But while it's lonely, it's you're not alone. Or you don't have to be alone. Yeah, I think loneliness is unavoidable at times, but we're definitely not alone in this. And even that devastating experience of loneliness is a portal to recognizing eventually that we're not alone. Yeah. In darkenment (laughs) to enlightenment. (laughs) 
It's a good ending. Yeah, wonderful. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Shomriel Sherman, a graduating student here at Goddard. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And be well. And congratulations on your graduation. Thank you. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.